central banks have inflation targets, right? So they want to set a target of like 2%. So your money is supposed to be worth less you know, by 2% every year. And that's their goal. Their goal is to make it worth less every really? single year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like right now, inflation's a little too high. It's like three yeah. and a half right now in, in the US. It was at nine last year. That's really Jeez. too high. But uh, they want it to be about 2%. Why? The reason is that if it isn't, well, there's lots of reasons, like complicated reasons. But one of the big reasons is this issue that you just described, which is hoarding. Why would you buy something today when you could defer buying it a year to when your money is worth more, to when that thing costs less, right? And so what happens when you have deflation, the opposite of inflation, is that people hoard money. And that means less buying of goods and services. And goods and services are what employ people and what create growth in the economy. to if you feel inclined to but it's a shit okay. show now with, <laughs> with all the trans well, and construction, the trans construction. <laughs> yeah totally yeah. but uh alex tapscott welcome to the gen stock podcast welcome, welcome. happy to be here <laughs> we're we're well i'm super excited to have this conversation he has no idea what we're really jumping into i'm excited because i like learning stuff yeah right on. it's gonna be a lot of information okay yeah. so we have in front of us here a book called web 3 charting the internet's next economic and cultural frontier what does that mean <laughs> Let's just start right there. Sure. Well, um, the choice of the subtitle and the title of the book is quite intentional. When you write a book, you get to choose your own title and subtitle, <laughs> which is always nice. Um, I think that Web3 represents a new frontier for the web. And I think, you know, like a lot of frontiers, it's got its fair share of risks and, and opportunities. But unlike the frontiers of the past, it's not bound by geography. It's not limited by natural resources. The frontier online is really an infinite frontier. And I think it's going to be quite transformational for, for culture and for business as well. Okay. So let's maybe start with the pure basics here. Because there's sure. going to be a lot of people that have heard of crypto, heard of Web3, heard yeah. of blockchain, all of these things. Definitely heard of NFTs with all the craze that happened mm -hmm. around it last year. But let's maybe start with what's Web1, what's Web2, sure. what's Web3, what's blockchain. Maybe let's, let's get those out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, um, every once in a while, a new technology emerges that uh, transforms the economic power grid and the old order of human affairs in ways that are oftentimes quite profound and, and quite unexpected too. And we've seen this play out time and again throughout history, whether it's with the internet or the TV or the computer or you know the printing press. And right now we're in this really interesting moment where there's not one new technology, but four, all basically emerging at the same time. And each of these different technologies has the potential, in my opinion, to be as disruptive as anything that's come before. So the first of these technologies is a thing called blockchain, right? Blockchain is not exactly a sonorous word. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. No. <laughs> yeah. um, and unfortunately, in this industry, there are a few words that are a bit clunky. Um, but blockchain, nevertheless, is an important innovation. Blockchains enable us to move value over the internet peer-to-peer without the need for an intermediary. So the first use case for a blockchain was a thing called Bitcoin. I'm guessing that a lot of people who listen to this podcast have heard of this thing called Bitcoin. Yes. You know? <laughs> You've that, heard of that at least. It's <laughs> that thing that's used by you know drug dealers and criminals to right. you know, move money around. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, for, for all the hoopla and all the value it's created, 
Bitcoin's got a market cap of $800 billion. Uh, Bitcoin was designed to do something really, really simple. Um, it was decide, designed to enable individuals to move money online without a middleman. And what was really remarkable about Bitcoin was that it actually worked. There had been previous attempts to try and create money for the web. You know, Mark Andreessen, the creator of the web browser, tried to add money um, into Netscape, into Mosaic. Later on, Elon Musk, someone, you know, who's done a lot of brilliant stuff, tried to make a digital money project before morphing into PayPal. The original X.com was actually designed to be digital money. But what all of those innovators could not figure out was a thing called the double spend problem. How do you ensure that when you move something of value online that you don't still retain a copy, right? Mm. So if you think about the internet today, like if I send you an email <clears throat> and attach something to it, I can send the same email to someone else. I can, in fact, send it to a million people. And so in a way, like the web, the first era of the web is sort of like a printing press for information, um, which is great when it comes to information, but not so great when it comes to assets. So Bitcoin was the first use case of a thing called a blockchain. Blockchain is basically a new operating system that allows people to move value peer to peer and to um, prove digital scarcity online, right? And so it works for Bitcoin, but it can work for basically anything in the economy that requires scarcity. Money, stocks and bonds, titles and deeds, uh, IP, art, collectibles, even votes in an election. Because if you think about a vote, a vote is a lot like a transaction. If I vote, it's important I can't vote again, right? Sure, mm -hmm. yeah. And that I can also see that my vote was cast and that it was counted for the person who I voted for. Uh, it's a lot like sending money or making a transaction. So blockchains enable us to move value peer to peer. And that's number one technology. <laughs> the second big technology is AI. Uh, AI is allowing us to fully reimagine what we thought computers could do, but also what people could do when empowered with these tools. And I think it's going to create huge leaps in productivity, but it could also lead to all sorts of cultural and social upheaval as well. And the third technology is extended reality. So virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, for 30 years, we've had a two-dimensional internet, mm -hmm. right? You see it on a screen, whether it's a desktop or a laptop or uh, a smartphone. And what extended reality promises is to take our internet and turn it into a spatial web integrated into our natural world. And the fourth technology <clears throat> is um, IoT, the Internet of Things. I'm not just talking about, you know, smart thermostats. I'm talking about devices that can think and do transactions. So all of these technologies are not separate, but related. Mm -hmm. In the same way that the term internet went from describing a very narrow set of like networking technologies to describing a whole range of technologies, business models, social behaviors, cultural phenomena, the term Web3 is coming to describe a new era where these different technologies converge with blockchains underpinning all of it. Wow. That is a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> <clears throat> so... Where does and I'm happy to dig in, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and tease yeah, and tease out a like... lot of the little details of all that if, yeah. you, if you'd like. Yeah, <clears throat> just more the Web three. Like what is what is Web three? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Web three is a term, as I just said, that that I think helps to sort of describe the new era that we're going. But I think it's helpful in order to understand Web three to define Web one and Web two, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, Web one, what uh, technologists call the read web. But what I think a lot of people just remember is the dot-com era was basically a medium for the presentation of static information on websites, right? So medium, static information, websites. You logged on. You guys look like you're like roughly my age. So, you know, you probably remember like the 90s. Yeah, dial up. <laughs> Going on the internet. Stuff, yeah. You type a URL into a URL field and information slowly loads onto the screen. 
images, text. Yep. That was about it, right? And, you know, it was pretty primitive by today's standards. You couldn't interact with that information. We weren't really uploading our own content. You weren't using the web as a way to find community. It was really like a broadcast medium. It was sort of one directional, mm -hmm. not, not totally unlike TV or radio or, or film, right? But it did something very, very important, which is that Web 1 democratized access to information. So it didn't matter if you were, you know, a guy in Toronto or a student in the Philippines, if you had access to a computer and to the internet, which is a big if, at the time, only 30 million people had access, but still, if you had access, everyone around the world could access the same information. And that was revolutionary. In the 2000s, a couple of big technology changes occurred, um, notably the inter invention of the cell phone uh, and the smartphone, that led to a new era of the web, what's now called Web 2. In computer jargon, it's known as the read-write web. Uh, and basically what that means is now the web was not just a way to access content and information, but it was a platform that allowed you, the user, to upload your own stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone could be a citizen photo blogger, citizen journalist. You know, you could share your opinions and blogs on Flickr. You could write things into Wikipedia. Those were the early examples, right? But later on, social media, I think, became the big business model yep. of Web2. And Web2 created a lot of value. In the economy i mean it created literally 10 trillion dollars of market cap in the hands of a bunch of big companies right but it also onboarded tons of people to the internet and it also gave everybody a way to share their own thoughts right so you can kind of think of it this way if web one democratized access to information web two democratized access to publishing so everyone now could be a publisher right before that, it was very difficult, you know, you write a letter to the newspaper and hope that someone puts it in the newspaper. But other than that, you had no way of broadcasting to the world. Mm -hmm. But Web2 came with some um, pretty big costs as well. And the biggest one was that all of this data and information that we created as Internet users um, was very valuable. But we didn't own it and we didn't control it. It was owned and controlled by platforms, by financial intermediaries, and, and so on and so forth. And that was problematic because it meant we couldn't manage our privacy, but also we missed out on whatever the economic opportunity was sure, there, right? Yeah. Like the big, the killer business model of Web2 was advertising. Yep. Um, even today, like Facebook is an advertising company, trillion dollar advertising company. And um, all that's built on a mountain <clears throat> of user data. And the problem with Web2 is that we had no way of expressing ownership online, ownership of our data, of our identities, of our digital creations, of our assets, and so forth. So enter Web3, the read, write, own web. So now the web is not just a way to access content or to publish information, but it is a new platform that allows us to own our own identities, own our own data, own our own digital creations, and be able to move value and assets peer-to-peer -peer without the need for powerful platforms and intermediaries. So they say technology uh, makes the world a flatter place. You know, you maybe maybe heard that. The world mm -hmm. is flat, right? Thomas Friedman. Um, well, if that's true, then I think Web3 is going to be a steamroller. Like it's going to flatten the world in ways we've never experienced before because it's going to give everybody around the world a way to move and store value and to potentially build wealth and earn money um, in a manner that was just simply not possible before. It, by the sounds of it, it also allows people in underserved pockets of the world 
to access financial instruments that they otherwise may not have been able to. That's true, and that's uh, supported by the data as well. There's a great company called Chainalysis that um, does an annual survey to look at you know the, the, the penetration of blockchain and tokens and digital assets. And um, they found, like in their ranking of the 10 countries that have the most adoption, that other than the US and Ukraine, all of them are pretty much in what you call like the global south, right? Mm -hmm. India, the Philippines, Venezuela, Nigeria, et cetera. And it, in a way, it's very logical because oftentimes in those kinds of places, uh, people don't have a a as much access to financial services. Um, the local financial industry could be corrupt um, or not serve their needs. Or the local currency itself might be hyperinflationary and might not be a good store of value. Now, this isn't, I'm not making the investment case for Bitcoin because what's happened with blockchain is that there are uh, all sorts of other ways that people can move and store value that don't include Bitcoin, including with the US dollar. So um, I'll give you an example like in, in Nigeria. Um, usage of uh, a stable coin, which is basically a token backed by U.S. dollars, uh, is the higher there than it is in the United States, for example. In terms of usage. In terms of usage, percentage okay. of people who use that. Mm -hmm. And the reason is it's a lot better to store value in U.S. dollars than it is in the local currency, the Naira, which um, usually has inflation of around 3% per month, right? So we get, we get worried about 3% per year yeah. in places like Canada. Um, and young people who are digitally native or used to using technology might have access to a smartphone connected to the internet, but not a bank account. So how are they going to use, you know, how are they going to move and store money? How are they right. going to use this technology? So what's so interesting is that uh, within Web3, the one of the, the sort of most exciting frontiers of innovation is actually happening in these different kinds of countries, which I think it is uh, an inversion of how we think about technology progressing. Usually we think it's like early adopters in Silicon Valley and Toronto and wherever who are, you know, picking up and using these technologies. That's not untrue. But what we're seeing in the aggregate is that people in developing nations are more willing to adopt this technology than almost anywhere else in the world. Why would somebody want to trust digital money <clears throat> over money printed by the government, let's say? Well, that's a philosophical question <laughs> that um, we may not have time to answer on this. Uh, <laughs> it on just the, sounds in, like we're going to have to do multiple in this conversation. <laughs> you know, Bitcoin's a lot like digital gold. Um, a lot of people think gold is a useful store of value, and a lot of people don't. And it's really a matter of, of opinion. Um, gold's got a 10,000 year track record that Bitcoin doesn't have. But then again, you know, so did horses. Right. 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 And today we still own horses, but they're a novelty. They're not the way we get around. Right. So what's interesting about Bitcoin is that, you know, it's a store of value. It doesn't take up a lot of space. It's easy to prove ownership. Um, it so far has done pretty well since its inception. And um, it's also very useful as a medium of exchange where gold is not. It's hard to pay for stuff with gold. Right? Yeah, you're not walking around. Yeah, with a, a gold, yeah. well, you'd have to shave and it chisel, into, chisel piece, tiny yeah. little slivers, right? <laughs> Whereas Bi it. Bitcoin <laughs> is like any other piece of software; it's infinitely divisible. So you can you can pay down to like a tenth of a penny in Bitcoin, or all okay. the way up to 100 million bucks if you want. But that's really a philosophical question. Um, you know, I happen to own Bitcoin. Lots of other people do. It's maybe not for everyone. Hmm. But what's really interesting about blockchain and Web three <clears throat> is that 
what makes Bitcoin possible can work for any other kind of asset. And this, I think, is a good way to sort of start a conversation about um, cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. right? So I think that the term cryptocurrency is just a bad term. <laughs> well, because, it scares a lot of people off. Well, it mm -hmm. scares a lot of people because the word crypto sounds like tales from the crypto or something. Right? right, yeah. But but also, it's actually just a misnomer. You know, most of the digital assets in the world aren't trying to be currencies, mm -hmm. right? They're trying to be something else. A currency is something very specific. By definition, a currency is a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. So US dollars are a currency. Canadian dollars are a currency. Bitcoin is trying to be a currency, but it's probably not all the way there. So it's a store of value, yes. Is it a medium of exchange? Some people use it for that, um, so yes. Is it a unit of account? Not really. That means basically, do we price stuff in Bitcoin? Like if you go to the grocery store, you buy a car or a house or something, it doesn't say this car is two Bitcoins. Right. It's 50 grand or whatever, mm -hmm. right? right? So we don't use it as a unit of account quite in the same way. Um, but what's important about digital assets or tokens, as I call them, is that most of them are not trying to be currencies at all. The best way to think about a token is basically as a container for value, right? So in the same way, a, a shipping container, you, you've seen like those standard shipping containers. Yep. You see them on ships, you see them on trucks. They're the same shape, right? But inside of the container, you can put just about anything that can fit into the container. You can put a car, you put furniture, clothing, food, you know, computer parts, bicycles, whatever, right? right. It's sort of an empty vessel to put stuff of value. So a token is kind of like a container. But instead of containing physical goods, it can contain assets. So it can contain money, stocks and bonds, right? Financial assets. It can contain uh, IP, um, you know, creative works, votes, like as I said earlier, anything that requires scarcity to have value can be programmed into a token. So a token can represent a share of Apple, right? I'm going to sell you the share of Apple. It's important when I sell you it that I can't sell the same one to someone else, right? Right. Because otherwise the, sh the share becomes worthless. So how do you protect against not being able to, if you came to me and said, I'm going to sell you that share of Apple, for example, how do I know as the person who's going to exchange mm -hmm something of value for that share that you're not going to turn around and sell the exact same thing to Matthew? Because I can't. That's the benefit of a blockchain. So um, we'll, we'll do a level set on, on blockchain. So um, traditionally in transactions, you have a middleman, right? Like a bank sits in the center. Unless you're moving money peer to peer using cash, if there's some sort of company that sits in the center. Right. And companies like banks <clears throat> and brokerages and and, um, and other intermediaries maintain a, a ledger of transactions. And the ledger basically says who owns what, who owes what to whom, and so forth. And for maintaining this ledger, for acting as a trusted middleman, those uh, companies get compensated. In some cases, quite nicely, right? Mm -hmm. Banks make a lot of money by acting as trusted middlemen. So blockchain is basically a ledger. It is a record of transactions, except instead of sitting inside of one company who we have to trust to maintain that ledger, this ledger exists on every computer that's connected to the network. And everyone can see what's in the ledger, but no single person or entity can alter that ledger. The only way that you can add any information to this ledger is if the entire network reaches consensus. So the way it works with the blockchain is that transactions are happening all the time. 
And periodically, those things are batched together into a thing called a block. That block is then broadcast to the network where stakeholders on the network basically collaborate together to figure out if the transactions are valid. If I sent you that money, did you really receive it? Do I not still have it? Mm -hmm. You know, if I sold you that asset, do you still, do you have it and do I not have it? And once the network has reached consensus that those transactions are valid, they are batched together and added to a chain of blocks that goes back all the way to the beginning of time. Now, if you wanted to alter that record, you would have to not just move a number in a spreadsheet, you'd actually have to rewrite the whole history of commerce going all the way back to the beginning of that chain. And you'd have to do it within a matter of seconds or minutes because soon thereafter a new block would get added and then you'd have to start the process oh, all right. over again, right? So it's a kind of a technical thing, like I'm not going to lie. Um, but what it does is it replaces trust in a middleman with trust that's distributed across a network. And in so doing, gives us a way to move value peer-to-peer. -peer. Because if I've sold you that share and that transaction gets added to a block and goes into the chain, then you can point to that exact thing and say, see, that's where the value moved from one account to another, from one address, as we call it, to another address. And that, ch that blockchain is available to anyone. And you can search it and you can... Um, dig into the details and you can know with 100% certainty that I can't sell the same asset twice or send the same thing twice. And that's how blockchains solve that double spend problem that for decades vexed computer scientists and really smart people. And what's so fascinating is that it worked, right? It worked for Bitcoin and by, by working for Bitcoin allowed us to imagine how it could be used for basically every asset in the economy. How can blockchain tech be used in our everyday lives like how is that next frontier going to happen yeah well it's already being used um, by at least a couple hundred million people in the world um, as a primarily as a medium of exchange as a financial asset and and mostly that's actually through the use of stable coins not bitcoin so stable coins are basically tokens but inside of the container is a dollar a US dollar. And those dollars are held inside of a bank somewhere, usually in the United States, right? And so what a stable coin is, is basically like, think of like Interac or Venmo, mm -hmm. but for the world and with no dollar limit. So like if you have family that lives in some country, you can send them a thousand bucks in one second and it costs no money, right? Today, that's, <laughs> like, a, gonna, that's yeah. like a superpower for <coughs> a lot of people yeah. because the average fees- Especially on the receiving end. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, remittances, like, so we're in Toronto, right? Um, Ontario, the province where we live, is the biggest net remitter per capita in the world. So what that means basically is that like we're, we're a city of immigrants and we have all these diasporas that live here and they're all sending money often, mm -hmm. not always, but often sending money home to their families. And that number is like $30 billion per year out of Ontario alone. Wow. Right. That's like $200 for every man, woman and child sure. in this country yeah. or in the, in the province. Those people on average um, are paying seven to 10% to send the money to family living overseas. So with a staple coin, you can do that transaction in a matter of seconds and have it cost less than a percent, basically. So that's an example of Web3 in action as a financial tool. Um, another really interesting area is in the area of um, culture. 
right? So you mentioned NFTs in your in your introduction. Now NFTs, I think, kind of get a bad rap. They're not just photos. Well, JPEGs <laughs> on blockchain, JPEGs right. on a chain or whatever, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, like there have been some high-profile NFT projects that where the price ran up a lot and where people probably got suckered into buying something and lost a lot of money. That's undeniable. And I think ultimately anything crypto related, anything anything <clears throat> in this space, you, people should be treating in the same way they treat the stock market and anything else. It's Yeah, I would argue know, probably caution more caution, honestly. Right. I mean, like what's, you know, this is an investment advice, but like what's a what's a safer bet? Like buying shares in Apple or buying shares in some random NFT, right? right? Like yeah. we know which one's riskier just yeah. by their very nature. But what's also true about NFTs is that there have been uh, at least... 300 NFT projects that have created $1 million of secondary royalty revenue for their original creator. So let's say you're a visual artist, right? And you paint like a traditional medium and you're a starving artist and you're just getting going. You just graduated from OCAD and you sell your first painting to someone for 500 bucks. And you're like, thank God I finally sold something. Right. And then let's say you, you hit it big and you become a real star. And then someone goes and sells that piece for $50,000. Um, do you participate in the difference, the upside? No, you're not getting I, anything from I don't that. think so, yeah. right? Some galleries try to enforce that, but in general, you don't get anything, right. right? But what's, so if you're a digital artist and you create things in a digital medium, and lots of people make art on their computers, right? It's not just with paintbrushes. You can sell your art as an NFT. And when that asset is sold again, because it's a piece of software, you can program it to automatically pay you. Mm. And if it's sold again, pay you again. And sold again, pay you again. Just a little bit. But it's like a royalty for music, right? right. Or any other kind of asset. So there have been 300 NFT projects that have created at least $1 million of secondary revenue wow. for their creator, mm -hmm. right? Not just the original sale of the yeah. JPEG or whatever, but a form of royalty. So to me, that's something that is really profound and um, something that we can apply to like lots of different other creative fields. Uh, one of the things that I'm quite excited about is how Web3 can help address some of these challenges that AI has created for for um, creators, created for creators, right? So everyone's worried that um, AI will be used to write scripts and to do visual effects and to, um, you know, do other kinds of create creative work. I mean, maybe we'll just have digital twins of people and put their face on an avatar and then we'll never have to hire actors again, right? Well, isn't that part of what uh, the actors were really about? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> exactly right. concerned about that very thing where their likeness would be used by AI in some capacity where, you know, at some point you're just not even going to need the human anymore. Yeah, Especially exactly. The, back, the background actors was, it was yeah, a lot about. Those are the most, yeah, right? I think the concern is like, let's say you're starting out in Hollywood and, you know, you're like get hired as an extra for a hundred bucks and then they give you a boilerplate agreement. And then the fine print of the boilerplate agreement is that you hand over your likeness in perpetuity. That's the kind of thing that they. And I then they make a star out of you. Yeah, and then they <laughs> yeah. make a star out of your face. Yeah, you get nothing for like, it, which you, is... and you get nothing for it. Yeah. So, uh, look, the the actors and the writers they went on strike and they won yeah. uh, some really important concessions from the studios. So they can't do that legally. Right. 
And I think that, you know, collective bargaining and the courts are important tools for creators to make sure that their rights are protected. But technology can also be part of the solution, right? So one of the big concerns with AI is that um, IP that belongs to a creator, let's say, you know, like Sarah Silverman, the comedian, mm-hmm. she's someone who's already sued OpenAI. And lots oh, of other, really? yeah, lots of other creators are really pissed off about this because they're like, listen, I can ask ChatGPT to write a script for a sitcom in the style of Sarah Silverman. And the outcome is a script in the style of Sarah Silverman. Where are they getting the content from? They're, they've obviously consumed every single stand-up routine, everything she's ever written, right. et cetera, and digested it and turned it into this script. And where's the compensation? Where's the attribution? Where's the you know, fair use for, of that content? And that's, the big, that's a big concern, right? So right now, AI models are closed, right? They're opaque. Um, they use a whole bunch of data that we don't always know where it's coming from. Yep. And we know that these things are creating a lot of money, right? Like the pro tier for chat GPT is 30 bucks a month. Um, the company's going to make at least a billion dollars this yep. year and probably like hundreds of billions over the coming decades. As more and more people start mm-hmm. to adopt it. Honestly, it'll probably... And they just released too the, the idea of being able to create your own GPT. I know. Which is, I think interesting exciting concerning like it just all mashed up into one where you can start creating your own gpts that'll just do things for you yeah oh and and i'm not an ai doomer like i I think ai is fascinating Mm -hmm. i think it's great but i think in order to for it to reach its potential one of the things we need to figure out is how to ensure that the data that's going in is is accurate um and that if someone owns it that they're fairly compensated for it i think that shouldn't be controversial i think it's fair yeah Yeah, exactly and so in the same way that you know nft projects have created secondary royalty revenue we can tokenize ip and so that every time it is used by a model it can create an attribution to the creator and make a payment right so does that then assume Okay, so how would that work in Sarah Silverman's case? If she goes out and she puts out a comedy skit, yeah, <clears throat> how does she ensure, how does she make that an NFT? How does she turn that and go, okay, whatever is pulled from this comedy skit yeah. is now going to pay me back a royalty if it's ever reused in some capacity? It's a great question. And I think a lot of that implementation is stuff that still needs to occur. Okay. Um, but I think that, you know, in, it's not just that, it, an NFT I think people think of as um, a piece of, a visual art, right? Some image that's unique from another image. Mm-hmm. But a lot, every piece of IP, um, most IP, I should say, is unique from the next piece of IP, right? right? So that skit is different from the stand-up routine, which is different from something else. And so you can you can have the data, so the, the script itself, and then you can think of the NFT as basically, instead of the asset itself, like the sig- artist's signature, right? It's a thing that authenticates it. So, you know, it would still, in this system, there's no silver bullet, right? But in this system, you would have to have the model provider uh, agree to pay the creator. It's not right. like they could use it. In the end, if some some skits on YouTube, they can consume that information and not pay the creator, right? But this is assuming that, you know, there's some legal regime um, that now allows us to uh, put something like this in place, right? And the whole idea is that creators, if their content is getting used, should get paid uh, instantly 
when it's when it's creates something of value yeah. it shouldn't require us to like comb through legal agreements and wait months for payments to come through in the mail or something like that you have to go and chase it down yeah. and everything yeah. i think like anything in life technology is not a silver bullet but if you combine this with collective bargaining with you know laws around fair use you can create a system that works for creators my question is you're talking about bitcoin and you can't buy let's say a car for two bitcoin well you can you can you can buy a car if for the person on the it's receiving more, end wants it's more just it that we way. don't think of it as being priced people don't like mentally think of things as being priced in bitcoin well like i can't go to okay let's say i can't go to mcdonald's and get a burger for bitcoin um i don't know if you'd want to make that trade <laughs> but like so in that in that sense because a lot of people think what could i even buy with this bitcoin is why would i why would i have it? it's like i have this bitcoin but I can't really buy anything with it. Is it. Well, lots of things are very valuable that can't be used as a medium of exchange, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't go to McDonald's and buy a hamburger with shares of Microsoft, but that doesn't mean that shares right. of Microsoft aren't valuable or right. gold bars or your house or sure. car. Um, that's, uh, you know, are, are an, is an asset fungible is the, is the word, right? Can it be easily used to, to buy something else, right? And um, that's why I think Bitcoin is not not achieved currency status because we don't think of it in that way mm. but that doesn't mean it's not valuable for other reasons yeah. right in the same way that we might have lots of reasons why you'd want to own shares in some company or own gold or whatever it might be so bitcoin itself is finite yes so there's there are individuals out there who will say, I would never sell my Bitcoin. Or I would hold on to my Bitcoin. I wouldn't trade it for anything because it's finite. It can't be reproduced, which I'll ask you to, to dive into in a moment. Sure. But it can't be reproduced. So therefore, why would I be dumb enough to go and trade it for anything that's not going to be like the I go and I buy a hamburger with X amount of Bitcoin five ten years from now yeah. that same x amount of bitcoin could be worth five six seven times worth that right yeah. so why would i do that so it's a good and question it's, <laughs> and, it, and it's sort of quest to become a currency the people who seem to understand it the most also would not even use it as a yeah. currency so how could it actually play a dual role well that's why i'm skeptical frankly that it ever will be a currency in that sense that it ever will be used widely as a way to buy goods and services. I'm just skeptical um, for, for that exact reason. You know, um, central banks have inflation targets, right? So they want to set a target of like 2%. So your money is supposed to be worth less you know, by 2% every year. And that's their goal. Their goal is to make it worth less every really? single year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like right now, inflation's a little too high. It's like three yeah. and a half right now in, in the US. It was a nine last year. That's really Jeez. too high. But uh, they want it to be about 2%. And Why? The reason is that if it isn't, well, there's lots of reasons, like complicated reasons. But one of the big reasons is this issue that you just described, which is hoarding. Why would you buy something today when you could defer buying it a year to when your money is worth more, to when that thing costs less, right? And so what happens when you have deflation, the opposite of inflation, is that people hoard money. And that means less buying of goods and services. And goods and services are what employ people and what create growth in the economy, right? 
So this is like the classical economic sort of view, which is that mm -hmm. you need a, just a little bit of inflation, just a tiny bit, because that way people won't hoard money, they'll spend it. What are they spending it on? They're spending it at restaurants, they're buying cars, they're going to Walmart. And what does that do? That creates jobs for waiters and cooks and for you know manufacturers and executives and everybody else, right? right. So this is like a theory of growth that says we have to have a little bit of inflation in right. the economy. Um, Bitcoin is the opposite. I mean, over so far. <laughs> yeah. Which is to say, since it began, it's just become more valuable over time. So, and and that changes year to year. That can change a lot. Like right sure. now, we're uh, fifty percent or forty percent below the all time high in Bitcoin, yeah. right? Yep. But in so far, in the long run, this is a thing that's become more valuable over time. So the logic is okay. So let's say I've got, uh, I want to buy a car. The car's $37,000, right? So one Bitcoin's $37,000. Let's say I use my one Bitcoin to buy a uh, Toyota Camry for $37,000. Next year, my Bitcoin's worth 50 grand, hypothetically. I just spent 50 grand on that Camry in my mind, right? And it's also lost value. <laughs> yeah, and, and, then, and then the car's 25% yeah. less valuable than it was before. So um, that's why, anyway, so this is all to say... I love these conversations always come back to Bitcoin. It's such a beguiling and fascinating topic. But basically, I just think that like as a way to buy stuff, people won't use it because they believe it will become more valuable over time. And that's going to prevent it from being used as a medium of exchange. But that doesn't prevent tokens that represent other things of value to be used in that way. Right. And that's why the thing that most people use today within this industry to move value isn't Bitcoin, it's US dollar stable coins. Right. And just to put a number on that, the amount of volume of, um, the, or the value of all US dollar based tokens in the world is $130 billion US. And last year, um, one of those stable coins called USDC, um, basically it's issued by an American company, the money is held in US banks, it's all audited and verifiable. But that one asset, did more dollar volume than the whole Visa network last year. Wow. Yeah. And that's because if you're going to move if you're going to move money, it's like or pay for something, pay for goods and services, the receiver and the merchant probably want something that they know isn't going to go up and down in value over time. Sure. Now the US dollar does go up and down in value, yeah. but it goes up and down in value against itself, right? right. So people don't right. notice that its value is changing. <laughs> right. Uh, they just see I I got a dollar yesterday, it's a dollar today, right? And so what they're um, not seeing is the fact that that dollar yesterday could be worth more or less right? relative to other currencies, but also that its purchasing power could change because right. of inflation. And right? I think the easiest way for those listening to think about this or watching is remember what it cost to buy a Big Mac combo at McDonald's a decade ago and what it costs today. Yeah. Right? Like there's that same $10 that would have gotten you a combo now doesn't get you maybe the sandwich by itself. I know this from personal experience because I just had McDonald's three hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so I got, go. and I, I was in the airport in Chicago and I got a McMuffin, yeah. a large coffee. And the, 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 the item comes with a hash brown, right? Yep. Like it's the combo. It's the combo, yeah. So that combo, I remember from my childhood being like four bucks Canadian, and it was 10 US dollars, which is like 14 Canadian dollars. It's like, man, that's a lot of money that's for a, a, money. For a yeah. McMuffin yeah. and a drip coffee, you know? And people anyway. are seeing it now in the grocery stores, like people yeah. are talking Everything about so expensive. how things are expensive, but Guess. the, the, the yeah. amount of money that they have or that they're using, that same $10, that same $100 buys you much, much less. Yeah, exactly. So how, how does 
crypto or how does Bitcoin or any of these projects, how do they combat this problem that exists for the everyday person? Well, I mean, it, it all depends on which project that we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a token that's backed by dollars doesn't seek to solve this problem. All it does is it, it seeks to create a better version of what exists today. A US dollar that you can send anyone anywhere in the world and that anyone can store regardless if they have a bank account. Mm -hmm. That's a superpower. So that thing's not trying to solve any problem. Bitcoin has an inflation rate which declines over time so that the amount of new Bitcoin that gets created slowly converges to zero. Um, that won't happen for a while, but that is the path that it's on. Um, other tokens, as I said, aren't really concerned with the concept of inflation because they represent totally different kinds of things of value, right? right. Um, some tokens represent in-game assets, for example. So, you know, people already spend tens of billions of dollars a year on virtual assets inside mm -hmm. of gaming environments like Fortnite or Roblox and others. And in those kinds of environments, like they're spending the money, they're buying the asset, but they don't own the asset, right? right? Once they turn off the game, it's gone. Or once, you know, the game, let's say you, do you want to, let's say you want to take your Robux out of Roblox and use them at Starbucks or something, or like trade them for dollars. You can't do you that. Can't, yeah. You know, you're mm -hmm. beholden to their rules. So what's one of the most exciting areas within Web3 is in Web3 gaming, where it's basically like, if you're going to buy the asset, you might as well own it. You sure. might as well have property rights to your digital goods, right? And so there are a lot of games um, that, are, that are emerging that um, make ownership part of the gameplay. And being an owner means that you can participate in the upside and also suffer the downside if the asset declines in value, right? right. Um, I mentioned at the outset that I view Web3 as a convergence of different technologies, right? So blockchains are the thing that make digital assets possible. I talked about how AI can be su supercharged by ownership. Um, and then the other thing that, one of the other things that I mentioned was extended reality, virtual reality. So a lot of people are excited about this concept of a metaverse, right? Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but everyone seems to have their own definition of yeah. like, what is the metaverse? Like, what is the metaverse? I don't know. There is no one set definition. There is no one set definition. I think that probably when people talk about the metaverse, they're thinking of like a virtual reality headset mm -hmm. that you put on uh, where you enter a virtual environment, you know, some world or something um, where you socialize where you play games and where you consume content. I think that's sort of the idea, right? Mm -hmm. You go into this world and you can be, you know, watch the, you can be courtside at the Lakers game and you can play games and you can go to concerts and hang out, like something like that. And mm -hmm. I think that's really cool, by the way. And I think the technology for creating immersive experiences will get there. Yeah, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. No. Um, but I think that companies that are pushing this vision, like Facebook, have a very particular view of how this should work. Their view is you come into this environment, you play by our rules. Any, any data that you create, we own. Hmm. You have no privacy. If you buy virtual goods, they stay inside of the environment. And if you want to sell them, you can only sell them to someone else in the game and we're going to tax you. In Facebook's case, they've mentioned floated 50% tax oh, for every time you sell a digital asset <laughs> within their environment. It's wow. Like, so it's a it's a Web two company playing in the Web three space using Web two. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. That's okay. exactly how I describe it. Right. It's taking the Web two model and putting it into a virtual world. 
Um, and I think that that's that's fine, I guess, right? Um, you know, it's to me like that's not some new exciting plane of human existence or whatever people talk about the metaverse. It's like a virtual Disneyland, right? Mm-hmm. And Disneyland is fun. So I hear. It's been a while. I was there. <laughs> it was fun when I was 10. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if it's still fun. I have two kids under the age of five. All I know is it's very expensive you very, these days. Yeah. This is what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you look at the cruise lines too. Yeah. It's a, yes. it's a whole other thing. I've heard that just to have a good experience at Disneyland, it costs 20000 bucks for a family of four. I don't know who's spending it's 4, that kind 4000 4, is the cheapest you can do it. It's 4000 but then the and the high end is forty grand. So I, the middle range there is 20000 bucks. Oh, anyway, so... And that's US, by the way. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if we're trying to create... Like, what's the, what's the reason the metaverse is exciting? Well, 10 years ago, we spent an hour online per day, you know, as people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you weren't near your computer, you weren't checking your phone all the time. Today, we spend six hours per day yeah. online. As my phone likes to remind me. Honestly, you. like my, I'm like eight and a half. <laughs> personally, <laughs> like I look at my, I'm like. You get those little notifications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, like you should reduce your screen time. It's yeah. like, congratulations, you've reduced your screen time from eight and a half to eight, yeah. 15 yeah. this past week. Like, oh, great. Great. Yeah, that's 15 minutes. What was I doing? I just spent 10 minutes on the phone thinking about what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> so we're spending more time using technology, right? Um, and it's possible that the hardware that we use to access the web ch- is going to change. Um, and that's because that's kind of how it goes, right? So for 20 years, we had the desktop era, uh, desktop and laptop era, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had the smartphone era. And, you know, the last, like the first iPhone 17 years ago, right? So maybe the hardware interface that we use to access the web is going to go through an upgrade. And maybe that's a headset or whatever. So if we're going to be spending more time and we're going to be in a more immersive world, that means like a bigger part of our culture, a bigger part of our wallet spend, and a bigger part of our sort of sense of self Mm -hmm. will be spent online, right? In the metaverse, whatever you want to call it. If if that's true, then we need to create rules uh, for that world that reflect the way the world works today. The good news is that we already have those things, right? So I say there's like a there needs to be like a constitution for the metaverse, and basically it has to involve really just three simple things. Number one is people should have a reasonable right to privacy. We have this in the real world, right? Yeah. This is enshrined in law in places like Canada, in the U.S. So you shouldn't be sh- all of your information and data shouldn't just belong to some company because you're using their virtual world. Sure. Mm-hmm. Number yeah. two is we need to have property rights digital property rights we have property rights in the real world if you own a house someone can't just expropriate it Mm -hmm. right you have a right to own that house you have the title to that house um online until blockchains came along we had no way of um showing um proof of proof of ownership of digital assets right we have a way of showing proof of ownership of real assets in the real world we had no way of showing proof of ownership of digital assets now we do right? Tokens can contain anything of value. And we need to have economic freedom, which basically means if you own something and you want to sell it or take it with you, you should be free to do that, right? Like if you own a car and you move to Calgary, you can drive that car across the country (laughs) and put it in a garage in Calgary, right? But in the metaverse, if you own a car 
virtual asset inside of Fortnite, you can't move it to Roblox. No. Right? They're, you're confined by the rules of those environments. Mm -hmm. So we need to have uh, standards that allow people to move their assets between worlds. And so if we can get that stuff right, which, by the way, we have lots of precedent in the real world like this is how the world works already sure then we should be able to recreate it online right. and if we do that then we'll fulfill a vision of the metaverse that um you know i think will will work for everybody do you foresee one standalone metaverse because you've got facebook building out its version you've got uh, several other projects building out their versions yeah at some point you know as a consumer i'm going to be sitting there going you know, from which one is which, like what's the the main one to be a part of type of thing? Or do you foresee a scenario where it's just going to be several metaverses and pick your own adventure type of thing? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> Fair. Fair, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the word metaverse comes from a novel called Snow Crash. And in that novel, the metaverse is sort of a singular thing. Um, and and in, in a you know all the history of, of metaverses and virtual worlds are not always necessarily positive, right? Yeah. You know the ne most negative version of this would be like the Matrix, right. where you plugged yeah. in, you're plugged into a computer and you're living in a fantasy land, but really all your guts are being harvested to keep this evil machine alive, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're not in the Matrix. We're not. We? In the, well, I hope not. Okay. <laughs> this, this is not the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. 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 You're not here to tell us. I mean, we're, we're in, in Canada. Yeah. Pod yeah. is legal, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> we could be having a whole other. We could be. Yeah. We could be having a whole other kind of conversation. <laughs> here uh <laughs> maybe that's but, serious right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh where was i going with that oh yeah so um but right now that's not the way the world works there isn't right. like a singular thing um right now we've got a bunch of companies spending a ton of money trying to build virtual worlds where they can make money off of people right facebook or apple's vision pro they don't call it a metaverse but that version of extended reality is a new platform to make money mm, right, right. Um, in the same way like the I, the app store is a platform vision pro is a platform so um, I don't really know how it's going to go what I do know is that we're really a long way off on this one time like, horizon I, I, I time horizon wise I don't know what the answer is but like realistically you know where's what is the world where you you and I are wearing contact lenses or glasses where this space that we're in right now is interwoven with the virtual world and where we have access to, you know, where, where our experience is being enhanced by technology and, and all the things I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It's more than five years down the road, I think. Because there's a hardware component and a software component. Yeah, like the Oculus. Have you ever used an Oculus yes. headset? That's like the Palm Pilot of headsets. In my it makes me dizzy. Yeah, it makes you, it's That's like. That's already on four though, is it not? Like the Quest 4? The Quest 4, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, it, it keeps getting better. It will get better. This is how these things work. Right. But what stage are we at? Like, this is, I think the Oculus, I mean, if the Oculus Quest was really that great, more people would be, would own them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. there it's was a really time. It's expensive in, too. It's also a price thing, I think, as yeah, well. Yeah, totally. Like, there was a time in the 90s when, you know, pe business people in the tech world had Palm Pilots and stuff. And mm -hmm. they were email devices and they were really expensive and they were pretty yeah. primitive. But for s a small subset of the market, they were very useful. Um, and kind of fun, right? Um, but it wasn't until the the BlackBerry and then really the iPhone that the smartphone became like a, a ubiquitous tool that everybody used, Everyone right? Uses, yeah. Um, well, the and, MetaQuest Pro is that the yeah um, Apple's new one? That's that Vision out? Pro. Vision Pro. Yeah. Thank you. 
That's going to cost, what, like four grand? Four grand. U.S.? Which sounds like a lot, but you know, like the first, like, you know, Apple computers cost like four grand 40 years ago. Mm. Yeah, true. Yeah. It's probably the only saw them in like Four grand is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But like... What but you're, you're not get, gonna get adoption. What you're for getting that. for four grand yeah. is like a computer. Oh yeah, it's just like yeah, the thing looks mind incredible. blowing. Computer. I'm really excited yeah, to try yeah, that. Yeah. I, but, I really uh, want to try it. Yeah, but technology also advances so much quicker, so it's yeah. easy to at this point to think, okay, maybe ten years down the road. But it's also when you I remember you were mentioning seventeen years for the first iPhone. In my mind, that was twenty seven, thirty years ago because it just seems like. Apple was around for so long. Mm. Yeah, but it really hasn't been that long. And even in those seventeen years, it's grown so much even the last four last seven years like the phones have gotten so much better yeah right so how do you what do you think would be maybe let's say web four <laughs> like what would that like what would, would that be what do you think that would be the, even like it'd be the wet web yeah. bi- the biological web you know oh, that's like Neuralink. Yeah. you know yeah. the technology in your body no i don't really know but that is something that people talk about i think about. they're starting human a human trial they on, are on that would be like the next be a the next four, frontier right? would be like you know when we become cyborgs but like yeah. I, you know i won't be writing a book about that <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have to no just no the book would write itself right yeah. i mean actually I, jo- I joke <laughs> i joke with people that like i got my book out at just the right moment because i'm yeah. pretty sure like most business books about business and technology will just be written by <laughs> UPT, <laughs> yeah it's like it'll be like the last human book about the web um i joke but do you th- okay so do you think if i you wrote this by hand extensive hours time on spent research yeah, on, a com- on a computer not, sorry not yeah, like, yeah yeah uh, that's what i meant yeah and then if I came up and said, I also wrote a book, but I used ChatGPT to help me out. Yeah. I gave it the prompts. I told it what I, what I wanted. I still read it, reread it, proofread it, did the whole work. But yeah. I wasn't there doing the research because that's what I used GPT for. I used yeah. it like an assistant. Does that take away from the output? Would you look at that and go, that's not fair because of what you had to do to create your book? Or would you look at the product, the end product, and go, this should not even be considered because it was you, it was created a certain way? Uh, I think fairness has got nothing to do with it. You know, I mean, I think if, if ChatGPT wrote a book that people, that was better and more insightful and people preferred, then that is what it is, right? right. I mean, like, that's the reality. Uh, what's, what's unique about this book um, is that I've always found when talking about new technologies that it's it's more powerful to tell stories. And so what I did with this book and what I've done always is talk to a lot of people and interview a lot of people. You know, I talk um, in this book about a 10-year-old Filipino boy named Sevi who's autistic. And as part of his therapy, he does art. And he was putting a lot of his art online on Facebook. His mom was posting pictures as a proud parent. And people started to sort of see this art and thought, oh, isn't that neat? Like this boy's doing painting. How, how cute. And his art was actually pretty good. Um, someone in the community in Manila, where she lives, told her about NFTs and said, have you ever thought of maybe selling this artwork? She yeah. said, no, I've never even heard of an NFT before. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she said, well, I don't want to sell it because Sevi likes to keep his art. And she said, no, you don't understand. You can sell a digital proof of this art, but keep the original. She's like, okay. So she minted a couple NFTs of his art. And all of a sudden, people started to buy it. And in the last two years, Sevi's been to New York, um, where he was on CNN. 
And his family's made $15,000 from the sale of NFTs of his artwork, which is enough to fund his autism treatment for the next wow. 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a lot of money for someone. No kidding. That's yeah. more than the average Filipino family makes in an entire year. So um, it's stuff like that, that that I think is really powerful. And um, you only get that by talking to other humans yeah. and, and like speaking to them and, and hearing their stories. And everything with a new technology also is relevant from within the last sort of six months to a year. And look, this is an implementation challenge of AI, but right now, most of these models are in trade on data that's at least a year old, right? Mm. So you actually don't get the stuff that's from the last year. But I think the much more powerful part of it is being able to, you know, tell stories and to hear from the people themselves, you know, Um, artists, creators, venture capitalists, business people, uh, a friend of mine who is in the book, his name's uh, Dixon Nsifer. He's a Nigerian-Canadian business person. His company helps companies that operate in Africa to repatriate dollars back to the U.S. And they use stable coins as a way to do it. But the more interesting part of that story is that he says the 100 employees that he's got in Nigeria, every single one of them is under the age of 30, and they would all rather make money in tokens than in the local currency. And that is a sign, in my opinion, of just like the the deep cultural and economic change that's underway right i mean like that that poses a threat to central banks and governments if people stop using your local currency sure and all that stuff's from conversations and i imagine i don't know if we're gonna have time for this rabbit hole but i imagine that's why governments and banks and you started at the very beginning with a comment about how crypto is generally used by criminals and you know like i've heard that well, that was thrown. a joke. <laughs> I, I know, I know. But that's generally the, the perception, the perception yeah. right? That's kind of the argument that's made for why we should entrust it and we should go with our, our trusted, you know, currencies. Um, but that's something that I think we definitely need a part two for. There, There is a part two <laughs> to that. Um, there's a lot to unpack yeah. with that, right? So the do criminals like... Think of traditional criminals like mobsters, terrorists, whatever. Do they use crypto assets? Uh, yes. Uh, according to the, all the data, and remember, there's the, the blockchain is a transparent, immutable ledger that everyone can go and see. So you can do a lot of analysis of mm-hmm. this. And uh, the data says that they use it less frequently than they use cash or prepaid cards or other mediums of exchange because it's traceable. Yeah. There's a there's a, there's a record. Yeah, you right? can you can public trace record. It, yeah. So um, the criminals overall are less enthusiastic about using um, crypto assets to pay for criminal activity. Right. But there's another side of the story, which is that there are a lot of scams in the space. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that's a form of criminality. Right. Yeah. That's not someone using coins to you know i don't know do a murder for hire some traditional mob crime or whatever but scams themselves are a form of fraud and and it's something that i think about a lot right because you know it's a big problem mm-hmm. in, in the industry and the way that i think about it is that technology isn't doesn't have like moral agency it's not inherently good or bad um, it's a tool and it depends on how it's wielded the, the first era of the internet, right, the Web 1 era, uh, democratized access to information. But it also democratized access to disinformation, mm. right? Web 2 democratized access to publishing. But it also democratized publishing of hate speech mm. and other sort of incendiary content. Mm. 
that maybe stokes violence or does something else. Web3 democratizes access to ownership and gives people tools to form businesses and to launch new ventures. But it also makes it much easier to launch a new scam. Sure. And so in a way, like there's a duality to technology where there's like a good side and then there's the bad side. It's um, in economics that's known as an externality, right? It's like if you make, if you're a, you know, an oil refinery and you make a product that you sell into the market, that's your profit. But the externality is all the sludge you put in the river, right? So the externality in, in, uh, in Web3 is that it's become easier to launch online scams. And I think that's a big problem. Now, the good news is that that's illegal. <laughs> it's illegal under the law today. Yeah. You don't need new laws to say it's to illegal to fleece that. people yeah. out of their money, right? Yeah. Yeah. That stuff's illegal. So we need to, it's not a technology problem, it's an application of the law. Um, so Thomas being issue. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something that, that we need to reckon with as well. Amazing. Alex, thank you so much. That was great. Thanks. We, we definitely have to do this again. Yeah, There's I'd a love lot to. to. I have so much here. more to go into. Yeah, no, I, I can tell you're just getting warmed <laughs> I up. I know, I am just <laughs> getting warmed up. <laughs> we definitely got to do this again. Yeah. Um, so where can people find the book? The book's available wherever books are sold. Yeah. Amazon, you know, Indigo, Chapters, Barnes & Noble, if you're listening in the U.S. The best way to buy the book is in massive volume. <laughs> Christmas. Buy Hanuk- 10 of them. Hanukkah, it's right around the corner. <laughs> and the mo- Amazing. <laughs> and, you're, and you're still on tour right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just finished up um, city number 12 on a 13-city book tour. So it's just in Very Chicago cool. at the Booth School of Business. And I'm finishing up actually in Detroit in two weeks' time. Very We've cool. been to L.A., San Fran, D.C., where we did an event at Capitol Hill, Boston, oh, wow. where we did at Harvard, um, Miami Beach. We've been everywhere. So Very nice. Yeah. Congrats collect- on the book. Collecting my frequent flyer miles. So, yeah. so my, my, my last question, as someone yeah. who doesn't know much, after I read this, like, what is, like in a sentence, something I would know? Well, at the outset, you asked about the title, right? And I said that this is a new frontier. And, you know, some frontiers are for experts only, require vast amounts of capital or knowledge to to overcome, whether it's climbing Mount Everest or venturing to the moon or something like that. But in my opinion, and history tells us this, the, the most bountiful of frontiers are the ones that are pushed by everyday people. So you don't need to be an expert to take an interest in this technology or to care about the future. Um, but my hope is that even if you're planning on embarking on this new frontier or learning about it, that you'll use this book as a guide. So my hope is that you'll read this book and you'll get a better appreciation for how this set of technology is going to change business, what it's going to mean for cultural and cultural industries, um, for society. And maybe there'll be some things you can learn and apply to your own life, right? Mm. Uh, maybe... This is for you, but for everybody who's listening. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you're a student and you're interested in a career in one of these areas and you like to learn more. Maybe you're an executive at a company and you want to understand what it means for your business. Maybe you're a you know people person who works in government and you want to know how you can attract capital or talent to your country or your location. Maybe you're a journalist who's got a negative view of a lot of this stuff. And this will help to reset the conversation or help you rethink some of these issues. So my hope is that it will help to spur a conversation and get people thinking about those things. Amazing. Alex, thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. And we'll do this again for sure. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you, everybody.